church. Welcome to worship. I especially want to add my welcome to those of you joining online or at our other campuses and those of you who may have come from a long distance like my friends Estefan and Daniel who are our partners at Word of Life Argentina. Would you welcome everybody who is uh, with us today? Stephen is actually one of the translators that translated for me back in December in Argentina and so uh Today, he just gets to sit and soak it in, so I'm, I'm glad that you guys are here. Take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. We're beginning a new message series called The Sermon on the Mount, and today's message is simply called The Disciple's Journey. Did you uh, hear about the Mexico City Marathon? It's kind of made some big news, about 30,000 people ran in this race, but 11,000 were disqualified. You know why they were disqualified? They, they didn't pass through the checkpoints. Now, do you know why they didn't pass through the checkpoints? It was discovered that 11,000 of them, some of them took a bus, some of them took bicycles, some even took trains, and yet they acted like they were runners in this race. Crazy. And yet... After, I don't know, 30 years serving as a pastor in the church and more years than that as a Christian, I've discovered that I think there are some of us who say we're in this race, we're in this journey, we're following Jesus, and yet, like some of those who were disqualified, we're actually frauds. Now, that sounds kind of harsh, and it's probably not a fun way to start a message but I would just tell you, that's, that's what Jesus taught us. Listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew 7. It says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. Many will say to me on this day, and this is shocking. So listen to this. It says, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not drive out demons in your name? Did we not perform many miracles? And I, Jesus, plainly tell them, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Disqualified. Frauds. And Jesus says this at the end of the best sermon ever. So the best preacher ever, at the end of the best sermon ever, says, hey, you need to get this right, because if you don't get this right, there's trouble. You're going to regret it. On May 22nd, some of you will join me. We'll take off from a jet plane, and after a flight that seems like it's too long, we'll land in Tel Aviv, Israel. And then we'll get on a bus and we'll go to the region of Galilee. We'll stay in a place called Tiberias, right there on the Sea of Galilee. And we'll spend a few days, our first days in Israel, just walking where Jesus walked and did most of his ministry. I'd love for you to come on that trip. One of the things that, uh, that we'll do is go to the Mount of the Beatitudes, now, just picture in your mind, you're in Israel, the land of the Bible. It's changed a little. Like, so the Mount of Beatitudes, some of you have been there with me, it now has a big old bus parking lot. And like a lot of the sacred places, it, it now has a, a church built on it. 
But when you go to the Mount of Beatitudes, you'll, you'll walk past these placards, these, uh, these signs that say, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are those who are of pure heart. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who are persecuted. And you can stand there and and you can look out on that hilltop into the Sea of Galilee and you can think, I can hear Jesus preaching here. I, I can hear Jesus speaking the Sermon on the Mount. The sermon about the gospel that really encapsulates everything he came to share. Which, by the way, regardless of what you may hear on late night TV preaching, it was not a prosperity gospel. It was not about how to make sad people happy or or how to make bad people good. It's about how to make dead people live. It's transformational. It's life-changing. Some have said that this message should be called the Sermon of the Monarch because Jesus talks about his kingdom like he does throughout the New Testament and how we are citizens of his kingdom. Dr. Luke records a little bit of this. His is not as long as Matthew's is, but in Matthew it's chapter 5 through chapter 7. Was this one message? Perhaps. Was this a summary of a lot of things that Jesus said? Perhaps. But what we know is that it expresses the heart and the expectation of Jesus for the Christian life. So it's pretty important. This is the disciples' journey. This is how we should look. But even beyond that, this is how we do it. So I want to dive in, but first, can we cover it once more in prayer? So Father, in the name of Jesus, speak. God, we need to hear from you. So give us what we need that we don't have. Teach us new things we've not learned. Make us different. And make these moments of eternal significance. Lord, change lives. Save someone today, Jesus. And Lord, to do that, we know that we need to pray against the forces that are working against us. So we declare that we stand in victory because of what you've already accomplished, Jesus, but we, we stand against the distractions of the enemy, the evil one, the liar. And so Lord, would you allow us just to, to zero in like a laser, to focus these moments, to hear these important truths from you. Lord, I'd also ask that you let the words in my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight because you're my strength. You're my redeemer. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Got your copy of God's Word? Matthew chapter 5. We're going to start reading verse 1. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and he sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. Now that's just the introduction. But I want to stop there because there's some important things I think you need to know. First of all, Jesus saw the crowds. I want to ask you a question. Do you see people as Jesus sees people? Do you walk slowly through the crowds? Do you look for opportunity for God's Spirit to work in and through your life, however He may choose? I want to challenge you. As we begin 
what in your Bible are these red letter words, the words that Jesus spoke. I, I want to challenge you to ask God to help you look out and to see people as Jesus saw people. But there's a second thing, just from this introductory sentence. It says, Jesus saw the people and he went to the mountains. Why would he go to the mountains? It's not fall in Florida. I mean, why did Jesus go to the mountains? It's because he was a revolutionary. And that's what revolutionaries do. There are some men and perhaps women in, in this room that have served in Afghanistan. And the craziness of the battle there against the Taliban is that these these terrorists would flee into the hills of the mountains and it seemed like they could hide forever because that's what people who are bringing a revolution do. And make no mistake, Jesus was bringing a revolution. He, he was turning the world upside down. It would not be like some of his followers want. It, it was not a military revolution, but he was saying, you've been thinking about your God relationship one way. I want to challenge that. I want you to think differently from this point forward. But there's a third thing. It says, Jesus saw the crowd. He went in the mountains. And then he sat down. Well, why did Jesus sit down? You may not think about it, but it's opposite of, of what you might expect. In fact, could you do me a favor? Could everybody just stand up for a second? Because this is how it used to be in Jesus' day. When the rabbi wanted to speak with authority... He would just sit down, and they would stand and listen. So let's just try this for a Sunday, all right? No, okay, y'all can be seated. Um, the, the reality is, even in the academic institutions of today, we, we have this principle. When a professor is tenured, when they have respect and authority, they get what? A chair. Some of you came from a Catholic background, and when the Pope would speak with great authority, they would say he was speaking ex cathedra, from the chair. And so Jesus sat down, and the end of this message, at the end of chapter 7, it says that when everybody heard what Jesus said, they realized it was different because he spoke as one who had authority. There's authority in the word of God. And so his disciples came to him. Now, I love how I read this probably, man, 25 years ago in a paraphrase of Scripture written by Eugene Peterson. It's called The Message. Listen to what it says. When Jesus saw his ministry drawing huge crowds, he climbed a hillside, and those who were apprenticed to him, his mentees, the committed, they climbed with him. Arriving at a quiet place, he sat down and he taught his climbing companions. Do you know who his climbing companions are? That's us. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you're on the journey. Now, that statement in itself means something. It, it means you're, you're one of the climbing companions. You're part of the group. You're one of the disciples who he called, and you said, yes, I will follow. I have decided to follow Jesus. But it also means something else. We're still on the journey. Right? We're not there yet. We, we've not arrived. Say, I've not arrived. And so Jesus gathers with his climbing companions. Here's what I want you to understand as we begin what will be about 13 weeks in the Sermon on the Mount. There's some things you're going to have to embrace if you want to get what God wants you to get out of this time together. Here's the first one. 
You've got to get up to go with Jesus. You've got to get up to go up with Jesus. So the disciples came to him. That means you have to get up if you want things to be different. Say, I've got to get up. If you keep doing what you've been doing, you're going to keep getting what you've been getting. Some of you are not okay with where you are in your spiritual journey. I want you to know you've got to get up to go up with Jesus. But there's a second thing. You also have to give up to go up with Jesus. You see, part of what the disciples were learning is that when you follow Jesus, you said goodbye to some things. In fact, there's a story in Scripture about a rich young ruler who wasn't willing to do it, was he? He wasn't willing to part with those things that he felt like he loved more. And there's some of you, man, you're checking the boxes, you're coming to church, you're you're doing good things. But at the end of the day, you've got your list of things that you're unwilling to give up. And I just want you to know, as you go to that next level, if you want to go up with Jesus, he's probably going to ask you to give up some things. He's probably going to challenge some of those areas of your life where you've gotten a little comfortable. But there's a third thing. You have to grow up if you want to go up with Jesus. So it says his climbing companions came to him and he taught them. See, I want to challenge you just to to each week make a decision. I'm going to come with God's word open and I'm going to ask God to speak to me in a new and fresh way. To teach me. Don't come in assuming, man, bless me, I, I dare you. No, come in saying, God, teach me what you want me to get out of this time. Make me new. All right? That just sets the stage. So then it says, he began to teach them. And this is what he said. I want you to read this together with me, beginning in verse 3 of Matthew 5. Let's read it aloud. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Of heaven. And these, some of the most famous words in all of Scripture, the w- words that which a lot of people who do not follow Christ even know, and some quote, these words are called the Beatitudes. And we could spend eight weeks just on each of these Beatitudes, just digging in and, and seeing what God wants us to see. They're considered blessings. They begin with that word, blessed. Some have called them the be happy attitude. But I want you to think about what Jesus is really saying here. Is this just a list of eight things that you need to do if you're going to follow Jesus? Is it kind of like the noble eightfold path in Buddhism? If you do these eight things, everything is going to work out okay? Is it like eight separate conditional blessings? Like we want to be blessed. We don't want to be distressed. So we want to do these things. And you do this and you'll get this blessing. You do that, you'll get that blessing. No. None of these is what it is. Or if it were, it would be a a weight too heavy to bear. And in fact, the whole Sermon on the Mount is going to turn things upside down. Jesus is going to say things like this. He's going to say, you've heard that it's wrong to commit murder. You're correct. But I'm telling you, 
If you hate your brother, you're guilty of murder. Jesus is going to say, you've heard that it's wrong to commit adultery. And you're right. But I'm telling you, if you think a lustful thought, you're guilty of adultery. So when you listen to this entire sermon, this sermon on the mount, this sermon of the monarch, man, if it's just something we've got to do in our own strength, we are going to fail. It's impossible. But remember, the Jesus way is different, right? The Jesus way is the grace way. And thanks to the grace of Jesus, our world really is turned upside down. Because the Bible says if anyone is in Christ, they are what? A new creation. All the old has passed away. All things have become new. So in the Jesus way, we get the verdict before we show the evidence. You understand that, right? Our way is we climb a ladder. And if we're good enough, God's going to say, come on in. You did great. But a Jesus way is, no, I'm going to give you my blessing. I'm going to give you my righteousness. I'm going to declare you not guilty before I see you begin to live for me. I'm going to do it because of your trust in me. Not a path to prosperity. It's not do these things and everything in your life will be happy. By the way, if you've forgotten, let this be my reminder that God really doesn't care much about your happiness. Shocking. He's most concerned with your holiness. If you look closely at this passage, you'll you actually see it's a paradox. In other words, it, it says things that don't seem to jive. So blessed are those who are poor. Okay. Blessed are those who are mourning. All right. I mean, it doesn't seem to make sense, does it? Everything the world says brings me satisfaction and happiness. This is saying live a different way. That word blessed, it's makarios in the Greek language. It, it does have a sense of happiness, but it's deeper than that. It's, it's fulfillment. It's what Jesus was speaking of when he says, I've come that you might have life and, and that you might have it overflowing abundantly, that you might have it fulfilling. It, it, it's like experiencing a new beginning, the, the breath of life into you. It's, 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 it's a flourishing. You're experiencing life that is flourishing to the max. It's an upside-down kingdom. It's recognizing that even when the things around you look grim and difficult and challenging, Jesus is enough. It's a message of salvation. So I want you to look at these eight things a little differently maybe than you ever have. I, I want you to look at them as the progression of the gospel, as the message of salvation in your life, as the disciple's journey. And I want us to see where you are. So let's start with verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Luke records this. He just says, blessed are the poor. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does this mean? Is this about what's in your wallet? <laughs> no. I don't think this is about being broke. Blessed are you if you're broke. <laughs> oh, No. I think it's blessed are you if you're broken. If you see your brokenness, 
This is talking about a spiritual poverty, a spiritual bankruptcy. Blessed is the person who recognizes that they're spiritually bankrupt. Luke 18 tells the story of two men who go to the temple. One's a Pharisee. He's a religious guy. And he just steps out loud and proud. And he begins to pray in a flowery way so that everybody can hear him, so that everybody can focus on him. And then Jesus says, another guy goes, and he just begins to beat his chest and say, Oh, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says in Luke 18, which one do you think gets it right? See, there's something about getting to that place where you realize you need that which only God can give. You need someone to do something for you that you cannot do something for yourself. It's a humble acknowledgement of your desperation and your impoverishment before God. And Jesus is saying when you recognize that, you're getting close to his kingdom. So first question, have you recognized that? Do do you see your need for God? When I'm talking to a child, we talk about admitting that we're sinners. Coming to that place where we understand no matter how hard I try, I fall short. That's the background of that great hymn, Amazing Grace. John Newton wrote these words, even though he had been a religious person, he came to the place where he recognized without Jesus, no matter how hard he tried, no matter how much good he did, it would never be enough. So he would say, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch. Or perhaps even the word he used, a worm like me. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And then he begins to build on that. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Well, now that's another strange one. What does that mean? Happy are the sad? That makes a lot of sense. If you've been through grief, you know what it means to mourn. Why? What is he getting at here? Blessed are those who have this deep grief? I think it's more. I think he's reminding us that when you realize you're spiritually bankrupt, the only natural response is sorrow before God. That's what happens when we see our sinfulness. That's why the Apostle Paul, man, we just walked where he walked in Greece and and traced his steps. and, And you see how God used this one man, and yet he would describe himself as the chief of sinners. How in the world would he get there? Because the closer you get to Jesus and his holiness, the more you see of your desperation and your wickedness, and it breaks your heart. Jesus is talking about getting to the place where your heart is broken over the thing that breaks his. So you mourn. It's not that you're sad because you were busted, you're caught. No, it's you're grieving because you recognize you are busted. You're a wreck. You're torn apart. As I look at our society today, I can't help but think that many of us have stopped mourning over our sinfulness. In fact, I would go a step further and say even in the church, we blush over many things Not like we should. 
things that used to embarrass us, things that used to bring guilt and shame to us, we've now begun to tolerate. I think it's what Paul was talking about in 2 Corinthians 7 when he says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leads no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. It's one thing to say, yeah, I'm sad. I'm sad that I got caught. I'm sad that I caused this pain. It's another thing to feel sorrow and mourn because you've broken the heart of God. So a quick question. We're taking a journey. When's the last time you felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit over sinfulness in your life? Because I don't know if I need to remind you, but we're all sinners, right? Even if you're a follower of Christ, it doesn't mean you became sinless. Hopefully you begin to sin less. We'll talk about that in a moment, but we're sinners. And, and so when we sin, the Holy Spirit of God in us, God is living in us. We are the temple of God. And when we sin, oh, the conviction of the Holy Spirit begins to rub and there begins to be a friction and, and we begin to recognize this is not okay. And this builds on the third thing. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. What does it mean to be meek? Is that weakness? Is that you walk around and you act like a pushover? And you just never state your opinion or kind of just stay in the background? No. In fact, this definition is quite different. Meek is a word that literally means strength or power under control. It's a word that was used to describe that bridle in the horse's mouth. The horse, one of the most powerful of all animals that can be controlled with reins connected to a bridle simply even at the hands of a child. The smallest of human beings on the back of a horse with the reins in their hands have power under control. So Jesus is referring to in meekness something that the Bible calls repentance. It's metanoia, a change of your volition, of your will. It's I'm going this way. I'm the boss. Everything's in my will. But I recognize that's not okay. And so I make a change of mind. And I begin to follow Christ. And I go 180 degrees in a different direction. I repent. I yield control of my life. To Jesus. Now I told you, I think this is describing the disciples' journey. And I think along the journey, this is the moment of salvation. And some of you will recognize it. How did I get there? First, I recognize that I'm a wretch. I'm poor in spirit. I'm, I'm impoverished. I'm bankrupt spiritually. I can't do this on my own. And then I begin to realize why. It's because I'm a sinner and that breaks the heart of God. And I'm, I'm mourning my sin. But I don't just stay in that guilt and shame. I yield my life to Christ. I give him control. And he saves me. Aren't you grateful, church, for the salvation of God? And what does the Bible call this? calls it justification. You're saved from the penalty of your sin. So all of us are born sinners. We're separated from God. That sin has to be punished. And the Bible even tells us that the punishment for sin is death. But Jesus went to the cross to take our death, to take our punishment. And when he did that, and I looked to him for forgiveness... 
I am justified. I am saved. That word justified, I will remind you, it means it's just as if I'd never sinned and just as if I've always obeyed. So if you're a follower of Christ, you were saved, right? You were justified. That's justification. Now, the Bible also talks about salvation in two other phases. It says there's sanctification. Sanctification is when I'm being saved. That's what we're going to begin to talk about in the Beatitudes now. I'm being saved from the power of sin. So as I said a moment ago, I'm not yet fully like Jesus, but I'm becoming more and more like him. Sin has less and less power in my life. If sin doesn't have less and less power in my life, something's broke back here at justification. But if I've been justified, I'm now being sanctified and praise the name of Jesus. One day I will be glorified. Glorification means I'll be saved from the presence of sin. I'll no longer be tempted to sin anymore. Aren't you thankful for the promise of heaven and the promise of glorification? Well, Jesus has told us how to be justified. Now he's showing us how to be sanctified. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. The beginning of the sanctification process is hungering and thirsting after those things that God wants you to hunger and thirst after. Your priorities are changing. Your desires are changing. You begin to want what Jesus wants. It's like the woman in the well who came to Jesus and and, and she says, I'm thirsty. And he said, woman, if, if you knew the kind of water that I would have, you would take my water and you would never thirst in that way again. It's beginning to understand that God has given you everything you need in him. My God shall supply all my needs according to his riches and glory through Christ Jesus. And so I hunger and thirst after the things of him. I'm not saying every day you wake up and go, whoopee, it's time to have my quiet time. Now, sometimes that's a discipline. Sometimes that's a habit that you do because you know you need to be in the habit. But he is saying that the more you do the things of God, the more you hunger and thirst after the things of God. Righteousness is not simply the activity that you do as a follower of Christ. It's the identity. It's who you are as a follower of Christ. And because my identity is in Christ, then my activity begins to change. And according to Jesus, this is the key to satisfaction. We empty our lives before him. We yield to him. And then he fills us. That's what Jesus does. He fills empty things. And maybe if you're living your life and and you sense that you don't feel like you're filled with the Spirit of God, then maybe you're too full of yourself or the things of this world. And the things of this world will never satisfy. You can get you a new house, but that won't fill you. You can get you a new car, that won't fill you. You can get you a new job, that won't fill you. You can even get you a new wife, but that won't fill you. But when you hunger and thirst after righteousness, that begins to fill you from the inside out. You just want more of him. See if I can illustrate this. A couple months, we'll do again in this country what we do every November. We'll celebrate Thanksgiving. And we'll do that as only Americans can. With a feast. 
And at some point in your day, we'll have spread out across a big old table. If you're living right, you'll have turkey, probably fried in some hot grease. And you'll have some good cornbread dressing, some green bean casserole, some sweet potatoes with so much sugar and pecans on top. Might even have some fried okra and some homemade biscuits. Can I get a witness, church? I mean... And you'll eat so much, you'll think, man, I've never eaten so much. You'll just stay at that table and you'll put in some pumpkin pie. You'll say, oh, I'm done. You'll raise the white napkin. Say, that's it. And then because turkey has a drug in it, you'll go take a nap. And you'll think you can never eat again. But then you'll wake up. You know what's on your mind? That turkey and dressing and green beans. Thank you, Jesus. Why? Because your appetite has bred more appetite. I questioned whether or not I was going to do this with my mama present. But on Friday, she celebrated her 87th birthday. I think you reach an age where it's actually a good thing to tell your age. And we have a little tradition in our house. We go around the table in our room and, and we share what we love about that special person that we're celebrating that day. We were at Cheesecake Factory on Friday evening and we went around the table and, and all of us that were there, in some way, one of the things we came back to is my mom's faith. Her, the way she models her trust in the Lord. And I, I've seen that all my life. But I'm going to tell you what I encountered Saturday. I'm sorry, Mom, don't want to embarrass you. But I called to check on Mom, and I could tell she was kind of emotional. I said, Mom, you okay? And this is what she said. Yeah, honey, I've just been spending some time with the Lord. And she said, all I want is just to be more like Jesus. I just want to get more of him in my life. I want everything he's got for me. I want to experience the things that he experienced when he walked and talked. You know what that is, church? That's hungering and thirsting after righteousness. That's not letting your age or your stage of life dictate what it looks like, but it's saying, God, I want to live in such a way that my appetite for you grows every day of my life. I want you to understand, you were made for more. That's what Jesus is trying to say. So I'm justified, and now I'm beginning to be sanctified. And as I'm sanctified, just like in the Ten Commandments, my outlook moves from just being vertical to God to looking out horizontally at how I treat other people. You know, Moses went up on the mountain and he got the Ten Commandments. Jesus is the better Moses. He goes up on the mountain and he gives us this sermon and these beatitudes. And in this, he does the same thing. He said, first of all, you got to get right with God. But after you're right with God, you don't have an excuse for not being right for others. So he says in verse 7, blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy. You know what mercy is? It's not getting what you deserve. Now let's rewind. We said we're all sinners, right? This means yes, class. We're all sinners. 
What's the punishment for sin? What do we deserve? But the Bible says that God in his mercy gives us forgiveness and grace. Jesus is saying, once you've experienced my mercy, you better start treating others differently. I want to just make this real simple for you and make it practical this week. And then maybe next week I'll, I'll ask you, did you do this? But you're going to come in contact with people that, are, that look suspicious. You're going to come in contact with people this week that have done you wrong. You're going to come across people that you think, are, are these guys talking about me? You know, I'm an insecure person. We're in football season now, American football. And I don't know if I go to a football game and I see the, the team huddled up. I wonder, are they talking about me? You're going to see those kind of people that, that you think are not treating you right. And here's what I'm going to challenge you to do. Give them the get benefit of the doubt. Assume the best. And forgive easily. Because you've been forgiven. And forgiven people forgive people. Which builds on verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Now, this is kind of confusing because we start out with a dirty heart, right? You've heard my story. I was talking to my buddy one day and talking about just sinful choices in my life. And I said, I don't understand. This is not my heart. And he says, yes, it is your heart. Your heart's exceedingly wicked and reminded me of that verse. But something happens when we become a Christ follower. It says in Ezekiel 36, I'll sprinkle clean water on you. You'll be clean and I'll cleanse you from impurity and from all idols. And I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I'll remove from you the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. But yet, we look in the mirror, right? I hold up the mirror of God's word and I know I am a Christ follower. If I died today, I would go to heaven instantly. And yet, I don't think I have a pure heart all the time. Why is that? Because I got a messed up mind. That's why in Romans 12, in verse 1 and 2, it says, Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by what? By the renewing of your minds. That's why that psalm that we've now read aloud for the last two weeks in church, Psalm 5110, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Blessed are the pure at heart, for they begin to see God. You see God for who he is. And then blessed are the peacemakers, for they'll be called the children of God. Now, this is an interesting one, because I think we think that means peacekeepers, and it doesn't. When you think about peacekeeper, you think about conflict. And, and it's not always good to be in conflict, but you can't always resolve conflict. Do you know that? That's why Titus... Paul says to Titus in, in that little letter, he says, sometimes you've got to warn a person once, warn them twice, and then don't have anything to do with them. There's some people you can't resolve the conflict and you can't bring about peace in every relationship. So that's not what this is talking about. What is he talking about a peacemaker? Well, what's the most important peace that we have in life? Peace with God. I'll never have peace with others until I've had peace with God. So blessed are the peacemakers. Why? Because the peacemakers are called the children of God. When you make peace with God, it changes everything. So what is Jesus saying? When you're living this sanctified life, part of what you're required to do is to be a person 
who's telling other people about the peace of God through Jesus Christ. God expects you to pour out your life for the gospel every day, everywhere. The church in our society will never be what it needs to be until we get that in our minds. It's not just a preacher on a stage. It's the one who shares the gospel with people. It's you where you work. It's you where you live. It's you where you play. Sharing your testimony, your story of what Jesus has done through you. It's what our team is coming back from the Amazon having done this week. It's what others will do around the world. It's pouring out our life for the gospel. And then he says, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We've walked through justification. We've walked through sanctification. And now he talks about glorification. In fact, he makes it real clear. Look at verse 11. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. By the way, read that full sentence. He doesn't say when people insult you because you've been a jerk or because of you, but because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you, that's how they're persecuting you. Jesus begins to remind us of glorification. There will be a day where if you live out these first seven things, if you walk through this disciple's journey, there will be a a day where you're so different from the world that people begin to say, nah, I'm not going to have anything to do with you. That's why most every day I wear this little band that looks like a piece of barbed wire. Because I recognize that more people are persecuted for their faith today across the world than ever before in history. More people die today because of professing Christ than ever before in history. And that persecution is not that you didn't get the parking lot space you wanted because someone whipped in before you. And it's not even because you think you've been told you can't pray at school because you can pray anywhere you want. Persecution is when your life has been impacted in a negative way because of the hatred the enemy is casting upon you through some of his operatives. The Bible says if you begin to live for me, you're going to experience that. But that's not the end. That's the good part. This is not all there is. We will be glorified. So I want to live today with the end in mind. I don't want to quit before I finish the race. I want to be like the Apostle Paul who says, I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I have kept the faith. I don't want to be disqualified because I tried to do it my way or cut corners. I want to make a difference for his glory. And when I do, the Bible says... I can say, now there is stored up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for that appearing. That's the finish line. I'm aiming for that opportunity where I see him face to face. This morning, my Bible reading took me to John 14, and I heard the words of Jesus say, 
Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it weren't so, would I have told you so? But I'm going to prepare a place for you. And where I go, I'll, I'll come again. He goes on to tell me, man, I'm going to leave you peace that's unlike anything you've experienced in this world. But this world is not your home. Remember that Mexico City Marathon? They said all the people who were disqualified from the race were, were found to cross the finish line in a fraudulent manner. Jesus ends this message saying, many will come to me on that day and say, Lord, but we cast out demons in your name. Lord, we perform miracles in your name. Lord, we went to church every Sunday. Lord, we even put stuff in the offering plate. Lord, we taught we served. And yet Jesus would say, but you've done it in a fraudulent manner. You're disqualified. You've not been justified. You've not been sanctified. So you won't be glorified. I want to get this right. In a minute, we're going to stand and sing one of my favorite hymns. Probably my favorite. How Great Thou Art. In the second verse, it says this. And when I think that God, His Son not sparing, sent Him to die, I scarce can take it in. That on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. Then sings my soul, my Savior, God, to thee. How great thou art. How great thou art. When I, when I really understand who he is, what that means, who I am, and what he offers me, it changes everything. That's what I want for you. Let's stand together. Would you stand with me? Bow your head. There's only two groups in the room. Some of you are like me. You're a Christ follower. You know where you're going to spend forever. There's no doubt in your mind. Praise God for that. But this sanctification journey has gotten off track, hasn't it, for some of us. So one of the things we do when we corporately come together, the Bible says, forsake not the assembling of yourself together so that you might be encouraged in your faith. Part of the encouragement is for you to, to take a, a growth step in your faith. Remember, you've got to grow up to go up. And so for some of you today, it's simply saying, God, I, I need more of you. <laughs> it's the Peggy prayer. I, I just need to be more like Jesus. That's all I want, just more like Jesus today. But I want you to bow your head with me. Would you do that right now across the room? Because there's some of you today. There's four or five in the last service. Much smaller service, but four or five people that said they don't know that they've begun this journey. They're not in the race. And so they began the journey today. Do you need to start the journey? Here's how you do that. The Bible says, 
Anyone who calls on the Lord shall be saved. So you've got to call on the name of Jesus. Maybe you'd pray this prayer. Not, not a magic prayer, but maybe you'd just pray this prayer. Just say, Jesus, I desperately need you. I'm spiritually bankrupt. Every one of us without Jesus is spiritually bankrupt. So just tell him, I'm broken. I'm poor in spirit, Jesus. I need you. And then acknowledge that you're grieving your sin. God, I'm not okay staying this way. Jesus, I don't want to stay here. Now we're going to acknowledge what he did. Say, I believe you died on the cross for my sin. And I believe you're alive today. Now we're going to model meekness. Just say this. Say, Jesus, I yield control. I surrender control to you. Come into my life and take control. I tell him, thank you. Thank you, Jesus. Our heads are still bowed. Our eyes are closed. But if you prayed that prayer with me, I want to celebrate with you. But it's going to be real simple. I'm just going to ask you to lift your hand, and then I'm just going to say welcome to God's family. And as I said, we had four or five folks who did that in last service. If you did that in this service, would you just lift your hand right now all across this room? I see you there about midway back. I see you there to my right. I see you here in the very back almost. I see you here in the front. Praise the Lord. Welcome to God's family. Welcome to the family of God. So, Father, in the name of Jesus, we just say thank you. Because you tell us that angels in heaven are throwing a party because of the life of people who've been changed. Because you answered our prayer to impact eternity today. You answered the prayer of men that gathered before this service. You answered the prayer of people who walked around these seats. You answered prayers we prayed on Wednesday evening, Lord, and eternity's been impacted. So we just want to declare, you are a good God. Thank you. We love you. Lord, when we look at the sky, when we look at this world, we're in amazement that you would be mindful of us. Like the psalmist said, how could you care about us? Yet you do. So we just proclaim, Lord, you're great and worthy of worship. We thank you. We celebrate you. In the name of Jesus, amen. Let's worship him together. Lord my God, when I...